Well, good morning. My name is Adam. I am the lead pastor here at Element Church Parker, and we are so honored that you chose to be with us for week two of our new series called Q&A. You ask the questions, and then together we'll explore and see what God has to say about those topics and issues. Now, it is not too late to ask your question. If you look up here on the screen, there's directions on how you can email text in or write in your questions. So send your emails to Q&A at yourelement.org or you can anonymously text in your question. Use the text word Q&A, then your question and text that to the number 22333 or you can write in your question on the back of your connection card and place it in the offering basket at the end of the service today. So far we have had some great questions and we've had a lot of them. Um, Some of you may be sitting back thinking I'm a little shy about asking my question, or maybe you're assuming that your question is so common, so popular, that it's surely it's already been asked before. And here's what I would say. I've made the commitment to answer every possible question I can in our four weeks together during this series. There may come a point when I just can't get them all in. Uh, We only have four weeks to do this. We don't want to all be here till three o'clock in the afternoon. So we're going to have to pick and choose when we get to a certain point where we just have too many questions. We will make that cut. We will make that decision based on popularity. So even if you think your question has already been asked, you need to ask it yourself because that'll increase uh, its popularity. We're going to look to see what are the most frequently asked questions. And when we get to the point where we have to start cutting some out, that's how we're going to make our decision. So go ahead and make sure that you submit your question today. We have had so many good questions come in so far, uh, and we have quite a bit to do today. So let's go ahead and get started. Before we answer our first question for the day, there are some ground rules. Um, We believe this, the Bible, to be God's revealed and inspired word. When the Bible takes a stand on an issue, we will take a stand with the Bible, and we will do so unapologetically and regardless of who it offends. When the Bible does not speak directly and explicitly to an issue, we will look in the Bible for principles that would apply to the situation. When we're doing that, I will tell you that's what we're doing. Also, throughout this series on a number of different questions, I may or may not at certain times interject my own personal opinion. Uh, When I do that, Um, I want you to know two things. First of all, I'm going to tell you I'm doing that so that you're aware. Second of all, when I give you my personal opinion, you're more than welcome to disagree with me. After all, everybody has the right to be wrong. (laughs) All right? So, uh, with that said, some of you may already be at a roadblock. You may already have an issue with me or us this morning because you may say, I don't know that I'm there. I don't know that I would say that that the Bible is God's word, that it's revealed and inspired, and that it's completely truth. And then when the Bible takes a stand on an issue, I'm not sure that I'm comfortable saying I'll take that same stand no matter what. My first response to you would be, that would make a great question. If you have some questions or concerns with the Bible itself, ask them. And over the next couple weeks, um, we'll talk about the Bible. We'll talk about why we believe these things about it and why we use it the way we do. My second response would be, last October, we spent four weeks talking about the Bible, answering a lot of those questions. Our series was called Word, and if this is a topic that is of interest to you, or maybe you have some questions concerning the Bible, one of my encouragements to you would be to go to our website, yourelement.org, and if you go to the sermon uh, section or page on our website, you can listen to, you can download, or you can subscribe 
uh, to the podcast of all of our sermon audio. And if you scroll down to October of last year, 2013, you're going to find a four-week series entitled Word. And we answered some big questions about the Bible, like how do we know it's really God's Word and not just man's opinion? How can we trust that the Bible hasn't been changed or corrupted? Um, What's really in the Bible and what's the Bible all about? Or we even talked about this, what are we supposed to do with the Bible? Now as we go through our questions today, like last week, we're going to get a chance for everyone to get involved because uh, it's going to be no fun if you just sit here and listen and watch me answer these questions. And so when I propose a question, all of us are going to stop and we're going to vote one way or the other how we feel about that question. Like last week, you get one opportunity to abstain. So you don't know how many times we're going to vote. You don't know what the topics will be about. So my suggestion would be use your abstaining vote very carefully because you never know what's coming up next. And so we'll all do that together and it'll be a lot more fun if everybody gets involved together. So here's what we need to do for our first question. I need to set this question up a bit um, because it's a little bit different. It's a bit unusual. Um, And to be 100% honest, it's a question um, that I wouldn't normally probably answer. I got to share a little secret with you. Um, Sometimes I get questions, these series, and um, they're not, it's not that they're bad questions, but I'm a little hesitant about answering them. And so I'll usually just kind of put them on the back burner. We'll see how many questions come in. And then if we get a lot of questions and I don't have time to answer them all, then maybe some of those that got put on the back burner just we'll run out of time for. One of the criteria that I use to decide whether or not I'm going to answer a question up front or if I'm going to push it back and see what happens is, will I have to explain the question before I answer it? And when I show you this first question for today, you're going to understand what I mean. Uh, This is a question that I need to probably explain before we can even answer it. The only reason I'm answering it today is because it has great significance for you and I. Um, It's been talked about in the media quite a bit. Um, Something significant happened this last week that deals exactly with this question. And this question that I'm about to answer is a direct follow-up from last week. Last week, the very last topic we covered um, was the end of the world and last things and what happens to somebody when they die and what happens when Jesus comes back and when, was, when is he coming back and what will it be like when he comes back and should we be expecting it any day now? We answered some big questions about the end of the world, the last things, the final days, uh, the second coming of Christ or the day of the Lord as the Bible would call it. So we talked about some of those things and this is a direct follow-up from, from that topic last week. So let's go ahead and look at the question and get started. So our first question today, why are there blood moons and what does it mean? So let's vote real quick. Um, How many of you in here would say, I think that blood moons have significance and that the Bible would have something to say about them? Raise your hand. Okay, Okay, a few of you. Okay, let's be a little more honest. How many of you have no clue what I'm talking about when I say blood moons? Okay, yes. That's exactly why I was hesitant to answer this question, but we're going to do so anyway. So what is a blood moon? Why, why are there blood moons? Um, a blood moon occurs during a full lunar eclipse, 
when the earth is perfectly between the sun and the moon, so that the earth's shadow is projected fully onto the moon. And this causes the moon to usually appear orange or copper or red or brownish. Uh, and, and it gets tagged a blood moon because sometimes it is quite red. So what does it mean? Um, well, if I can be real honest, it means that we live in a solar system where the moon orbits the earth and the earth orbits the sun. But I don't think that's what the person was really asking. So why is this so big right now in the media and why was this question asked and why are we talking about it today? Well, let me just say this first of all. Our society is obsessed with apocalyptic themes. All right, We love into the world stuff. We love zombie movies. I mean, hey, is, is anybody else ready for today is uh, Walking Dead season 5 premiere? A few of you? Okay. Um, we love talking about it and we love, um, it just draws attention and for TV stations and media outlets, it draws ratings. Now, here's why I'm answering your question today. We just had a blood moon this last week. Are some of you aware of that? Um, it was talked about on the news. It's been on Facebook. So some of you are aware, maybe even some of you went outside to go see it. Um, and so we just had a blood moon. And, um, but here's why it's probably a little more heightened, because it's, it's not terribly common, but it's not unheard of either to have a blood moon. Um, and so, but let me tell you why the media is hyping on this right now. Uh, in 2003, last year, there is a, a pastor who um, is in the media quite often, sometimes for good things, many times because he's saying something that um, makes the rest of us Christians look silly. Um, and he wrote a book called Four Blood Moons, Something is About to Change. Um, and the media has been kind of jumping on this theme in his book and associating all Christians with believing what he says in his book. And uh, I need to be honest, I haven't read the book, but the premise is built off a passage in the Old Testament, Joel 2.31, where um, God, talking about the end time, says this, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We talked about last week, the day of the Lord is when Christ comes back again. Um, so we are in an astronomical cycle right now called a lunar tetrad, meaning that we will experience a lunar eclipse every six months in 2014 and 2015 for a total of four lunar eclipses. It's rare, um, not totally uncommon, but it is unusual. Um, so John Hagee, this pastor who wrote the book, um, he argues two things. First, um, uh, it, this cycle is significant because the four lunar eclipses are going to perfectly coincide with four major Jewish holidays and festivals. Um, that's Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was just celebrated in the Jewish world this last week. Um, according to Hagee, total lunar eclipses have only fallen on major Jewish holidays three times in the last 500 years, and major world events have happened at those same times, uh, and though they, they centered around the Jewish people and nation. And so he concludes that these upcoming, um, we've already had two this year, so we just had the second one of 2014, there's two more coming up, um, that the two that have already passed and the two that are yet to come, the, these four, um, lunar eclipses are signaling something major because God is in control of everything that happens in our world and solar system. And so um, here's my response. I would agree with Hagee that God is in control, um, that nothing outside of our solar system within our universe is outside of God's control. Um, and while I haven't done a thorough job of doing research, 
uh, to confirm uh, the coinciding major world events with these um, blood moons as they happen on Jewish holidays. I did look into his research and um, I was um, intrigued at best and very unimpressed. Um, I think he was stretching things quite a bit to make his little system work. Um, and so here's, here, uh, let me say this. Uh, first of all, blood moons happen because of the way God created our world and our solar system. Um, the idea that there's something significant about these blood moons, or we could just say a full lunar eclipse, that makes it sound a lot less dramatic. Um, a lunar eclipse, um, when it happens in conjunction with a Jewish holiday, let me tell you something that's going to make all of this seem really unimpressive um, that you may not have known. Um, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. Um, so the Jewish calendar is based off the cycles of the moon. And so it's inevitable that when we have a full lunar eclipse that there's going to be something um, centered on the Jewish calendar around that event because that's the way their calendar works. Uh, here's what I think is more impressive than anything else about the whole issue. Um, what surprises me the most and grabs my attention the most is the fact that Hagee's book made the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and I just, our society is obsessed with apocalyptic themes and literature. And um, I think, um, I don't want to discredit his genuineness, but I think Hagee is playing on this idea and making some good money at writing a book that's going to get attention. And so I don't think it has any significance uh, in regards to end times. Um, but I guess we'll see, huh? All right, so here's what we're going to do next. We're going to do something uh, called the hot seat. And Pastor Eddie's going to come up here, and he has a list of questions that you have asked. Um, and he's going to come up here, and he's going to read them. And we're going to do some quick, short-fire answers uh, to these. So come on up here, Eddie. Let's, we'll get seated and situated, and you can, um, you can start shooting away. Was Jesus in hell between the time he died and when he rose from the dead? Okay, that's a great question. Let me tell you where uh, this question comes from. Um, there are two things. Number one is there's some church tradition um, that has taught this over the centuries, and it's because um, back in early Christianity, before the average population could read, um, most of them were illiterate, and even if they could read, they couldn't afford a Bible because they had to be hand-copied and were terribly expensive. So in order to help teach people and kind of give them something to memorize and remember and teach others, they came up with something called creeds. And they were kind of like poems that taught the major foundational teachings of Christianity that people would memorize. They would chant them in churches and you could go home and teach them to your children or your neighbor um, and, and kind of communicate effectively what it is that makes us unique as Christians. And so there's something called the Apostles' Creed that comes from about the 3rd or 4th century. Um, it, some of you, depending on your church background, you may have even quoted this or, or recited this in your church growing up. Um, and it begins with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. Uh, there's a part of that creed that it said, talking about Jesus, that he was crucified, died, and was buried. And it says this, he descended into hell. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And so um, some Christians have held that as a belief because it was kind of embedded in that creed. It actually wasn't an original part of the creed. It came 
several centuries later. Um, but there's also a text out of the Bible um, that some people have interpreted to mean that Jesus went to hell between his death and his resurrection. 1 Peter three eighteen and 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So talking about the, the death of Christ. And then here's something that Peter says in verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So some have understood that this preaching to the spirits in prison meant that Jesus went to hell um, and there preached. Um, and, and why he did that, what the result of his preaching was, we, we, we don't have any answers to. But let me tell you why I don't think this verse is actually teaching that Jesus went to hell um, those three days. Um, the big sentence in this passage comes out of verse 18, before we get to that text about the, the part about proclaiming to the spirits. Peter says this, and this is his big point, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So we have these two contrasting ideas, death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Um, so this is the big point for Peter. Jesus was put to death in the flesh. The men who tried to kill him killed his body. But Christ was made alive in the Spirit. Um, I think what Peter's doing next is giving us an example of what it means to be alive in the Spirit. Um, how are we to understand what it means that Jesus died physically in the flesh but was a made, alive, made alive in the Spirit? Well, he's going to reference back into the na- days of Noah. Um, and he's going to make the argument that Jesus was alive and present and working in the days of Noah, even though he wasn't physically walking on the earth because he wasn't going to be born uh, for a couple thousand years. And so he's saying that through Noah, in the Spirit of God, Jesus' Spirit was preaching and trying to proclaim the truth to the people during Noah's day, but they wouldn't listen um, and so Noah and his family were the only ones that ended up getting saved. They were the only ones who would listen. And so I think Peter's trying to give us an example of what it means for Jesus to be alive in the Spirit and the fact that though he isn't seen physically anymore, he's still at work. Um, and so I think that's a better picture of what Peter's actually saying there. And I actually think the strongest textual evidence for where Jesus was those three days between his death and his resurrection that would come out of the Bible, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and the thief next to him confesses Christ to be uh, who he is, that he was innocent, um, and, and he, he, he basically, uh, he's confessing Christ and asking Christ to come into his life and to save him. He says, Jesus, um, will you remember me in your kingdom? And what is Jesus' response? Today, you will be with me in paradise in Luke 23, 43. Today. And so I think that's the strongest textual evidence that after his death, Jesus um, was in heaven. But let me say this, this is not a salvation issue. So if you hold to what the Apostles' Creed says or you don't agree with the way I read and understand 1 Peter chapter 3, I don't think this is an issue where you know, one side of the fence or the other means you are not a Christian. Um, I think we can lovingly disagree about it because in the end, Jesus did die 
regardless of where he was for those three days, he rose again, and it's through him and in him uh, that we're saved. And so I think that's what matters most. Uh, what's the difference between Christianity and baptism? Okay, great question. Uh, Christianity is a general term that we use to describe the people who profess Christ to be the Son of God, uh, who died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead um, three days later, and now sits on a throne at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven, awaiting his return to finish what he started. And so Christianity is that general term applied to the people who believe that. Uh, baptism is a Christian ordinance or practice that seeks to be an external symbol of an inward change. So when we believe those things that we just mentioned, and we, we confess them and we ask Christ to forgive us and to come into our lives and to change us, the Bible says that um, for those who are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so something inside of us has been changed. And so we get baptized to be an external symbol of what happened on the inside of us. So just as Jesus was killed in the flesh, like we just read earlier, um, and was buried, we go under the water to symbolize what happened to Christ, that he died and was buried. But also that when we profess Christ, that we, we put to death our old self. And so we too... Um, die and are buried in our old self. And then just as three days later Christ was raised from the dead um, to prove he was God, to conquer sin and death, um, the Christian, we die to our old self, which is buried, and then we are raised up into new life in Christ. Paul said it this way in Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And... uh, and so that's what happens in, this, in, a, in the Christian's life. And we, we show that through baptism. And so baptism does not make you a Christian. It shows uh, what you already believe. So it's just an external symbol of something that you believe and that's already happened on the inside of you. In regard, there's another next one. In regards to Jesus' crucifixion, were the nails really through the hands or in the wrists? Okay. Uh, the Greek word used in the text is the Greek word care, and it actually represents a pretty big area. It represents the lower portion of the arm, the hand, uh, the wrist, and it can even mean fingers. So the Bible's not real clear um, when it uses that word about where the nails went in. Uh, so we don't really know, but our study from archaeology, historical documents, um, our study of human anatomy would say that the body, the, that the palm couldn't support the full weight of a person hanging so most likely it was probably through the wrist. All right. Here's an interesting one. Maybe you expound a little bit. Is premarital sex a sin? Okay. So the Bible would say uh, that all sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is wrong, immoral, sinful. Uh, and when we say all, we mean all um, the Greek word that we actually translate as fornication or sexual immorality is uh, porneia, um, which you can tell we get, our, we get our word pornography from it. So even what you think about and what you look at um, needs to be kept within the covenant of marriage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 to single Christians, um, to, to Christians, if you're single and you can't control your desires and lust, then you should go get married. Wow. Are you saying that not just 
the actual act of sex is wrong, but there are other leading yes. up to it, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Absolutely. What you think about, what you look at, what you wow. Okay. Did you daydream get, about. Did you get, I mean, I'm, I'm agreeing with him. Okay, I'm just trying to get you all to shook up. Okay, uh, very good. And then, what does the Bible say about women? Are you sure you want to read this? <laughs> okay, ladies, hang on here. No. What, this is a good question. What does the Bible say about women reading? Because sometimes men might. Okay. About women, I can't hardly get this question out. <laughs> what does the Bible say about women reading books like Fifty Shades of Grey? Okay. I don't know what that book is about, but. Well, I, I have a Is it a bad book? Did you read it? <laughs> I, I did not. Oh, okay, good, good. Did you think I was going to say I did? Yes. Okay, no, I didn't. Um, I did jump on Amazon, and I looked at the book description, and I read the reviews. Um, so having not read the book, it sounds like it's pornography without pictures. Um, so I would say um, that would be some sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. Um, so... If for some reason you find yourself curious or unsatisfied or um, wanting to spice things up, um, the Bible would teach us that within the covenant of marriage, so long as both people are comfortable and are in agreement, and so long as no one else is brought into the picture, so that could be physically, that could be mentally, that could be through digital or print media, so long as it's limited to just the two, um, that it's fair game. And so I would say, have fun, but keep it in the bedroom, not a book. Okay. So you would say then that uh, even other books today and material that would be, as our society would call it, would be soft porn. Sure. Would be sure. something we just need to stay we need to keep a, away from it. Right? Limited that, in the marriage to our spouse. Okay. Um, and prior to prior to marriage, I would say if you're not married, then that would be limited to no one. If you can't control it, then Paul talk says, to your, go get talk, married. There you go. Or talk to your pastor. Nope, go get married. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Perfect. Thank Great you. questions. Thank you. All right. Um, so let's, uh, I'll take that. Chad's going to want that back. All right. So here's, here's we got one more that we're going to cover today. And this will be um, kind of our big thought for the day. Uh, this so far has been the most common question and topic raised thus far. We've um, received a lot of questions. Like we're, I'm pushing almost 50 questions so far. And this is by far the most common uh, asked um, question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, here's a couple samples of the way it's been asked. Um, why do bad things happen to people who are faithful and good things happen to people who are evil? Why does God allow us to suffer? Um, here's some examples. Kids with cancer, losing loved ones early, people who struggle with gay feelings, attacks on innocent people. Um, here's another one. Why does God put good people through bad times? Um, we've all asked this question. Um, maybe you're sitting here today asking the question. Maybe you've asked it before. Um, maybe you've never asked it, and I'll just say this. Um, you will one day. Life will knock you down, and you'll ask this question. Um, so we need to vote because we do that with every question. Um, but we'll make this one a little easier since this is a little heavy topic. Um, let me ask you this. If I were to say, what is the oldest book in the Bible? I would be curious to know what your answer would be. So if I say, what's the oldest book in the Bible? Um, how many of you are going to say Genesis? Oldest book in the Bible? 
a couple, okay? Um, somebody's going to say a book other than Genesis. Okay, a lot of you are not playing and having fun with us. You're, you're waiting for the trick question and you're trying to look smart and not get caught. All right, so it depends on how you answer the question oldest. Um, what's the oldest book in the Bible? Um, if you're talking about which book references the oldest material and the oldest dates and stories, obviously that would have to be Genesis because it talks about creation um, and the first people God created. Um, if we're talking about what is the oldest book as far as the date it was written and completed, um, then that would go, that title would go to the book of Job. Um, here's what's interesting. Regardless of what you consider the oldest book of the Bible, both books deal with this question. Both books seek to ask and answer this question. Job being the oldest completed book uh, in the Old Testament. If it were in chronological order, Job would fall right in between Genesis 11 and 12. Um, the whole premise of the book is, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow good people to go through really bad times? And that's the whole premise of the book, um, is trying to gather um, an answer for that, trying to wrap our minds around why do why does such terrible things happen to good people. Um, the book of Genesis really seeks to answer this question. Does our God keep his promises? God's made some pretty big promises to us. Is he a kind of God who keeps his promises? Because you got to think, Genesis is written by Moses, and at the time that he's writing, um, the, the Jewish people are trying to figure out that question because they're going through some really bad times, and they're suffering um, during Moses' time as a leader over Israel, um, they were enslaved in Egypt. And so God's people were slaves in Egypt and wondering, um, God's made some pretty big promises. How's he going to get us out of this one? Is he going to keep his promises? And then even after they get out of slavery, they spend a generation traveling through the wilderness wondering, is God ever going to fulfill his promise? We're all suffering here. We're all going through a terrible time. Is God going to pull through? So regardless of how you look at it, both books, um, the two oldest books in the Bible, deal really with this issue. So if you're asking this question today, you need to feel comfortable in knowing that you're in good company because a lot of people for a very long time have been asking and seeking the answer to this same question. Um, unfortunately, uh, sometimes there's some false advertising in Christianity. And it's usually put forth by very well-meaning people, um, some maybe not so well-meaning, but usually vel very well-meaning Christian pastors and leaders, um, and they say something like this, life is better with God. Now really it depends, how do you define better? If by better you mean with God you have a firm foundation, with God you have hope for the future, and you understand what love and mercy and grace and peace and forgiveness are, um, then yes, life is better with God. If by better you mean um, my kids behave, my spouse never nags, I'll never get cancer, and the checking account will never run low, then no, life doesn't necessarily, is not going to necessarily be better with God. And so we have to get a better picture um, uh, of what we're talking about here, and I don't want to put any false advertising ahead um, and before you that somehow being a follower of Christ 
And being faithful is going to somehow make your life easier or simple. As a matter of fact, the Bible would actually probably support the opposite. Um, In John 16, um, starting in verse 33, Jesus is talking about some really difficult things that the disciples are going to go through. And he says this, um, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, or some translations say trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And just think about some of the people who followed Christ. Paul, did he experience difficult times? I mean, we spent like nine months walking through one of Paul's books. Um, Paul experienced terrible life circumstances. Um, Hunger, famine, disease, sickness, shipwrecks, false imprisonments, false um, execution attempts, illegal trials, illegal punishments, and eventually was killed for his faith. Um, Think about the 12 disciples. Aside from Judas, the remaining 11, um, we don't get a picture of how all of their lives ended in the Bible, but history does teach us. And all of the disciples die a very bad death. The only one who's not outright executed for their faith in Christ would be the Apostle John. His wasn't much better. Um, History teaches us that he was tarred and then exiled to a lonely island where he spent his last days. Um, Think about Jesus. Was he a good person? Did he experience bad? Even outside of the cross, did he experience bad? Absolutely. Listen, any definition of what Christianity is supposed to be like, if Jesus doesn't qualify, it's probably a bad definition. All right? And so we need to understand that if you're suffering, um, you're not only in good company because people have been asking these questions for a long time, but people who love Jesus, were passionate, faithful followers, have wrestled and gone through suffering um, a lot. And so you're in good company. Now, I'm going to give you, uh, first I want to start off by giving you five perspectives on suffering. Let me say this before I give you these five. My answers are incomplete um, and they are not perfect. I, I have a, a small grasp on suffering via the scriptures and life experience. But only God really understands the suffering that you're going through. And only, and only God really understands why suffering happens. So I'm going to give you some things that will help. They are not perfect. They are not complete. Um, and if you are personally suffering right now, if, if you were the one who asked one of those questions because it's you now, um, I hope this brings some encouragement and relief. Um, but these five answers will not solve your problems. You're not going to go home today um, with with everything fixed, but I think maybe it'll help, okay? So five perspectives on suffering. Number one, our world is stained and corrupted by sin. Our world is stained and corrupted by sin. Romans chapter 8 talks about the curse of sin on our lives and on our world. As a matter of fact, Romans talks, Romans chapter 8 even talks about how creation itself is groaning waiting for things to be made right. Last week, when we talked about end times, we talked about in the end, God gets a victory and he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. Um, There will come a time when everything is made right. That is not this time. There will come a time when the curse of sin is removed. 
um, where we're given um, life to its fullest. Um, Our minds will no longer be limited um, and finite. Our bodies will no longer be corruptible. That time has not yet come. Sin has stained and corrupted our world. And part of that effect and result is that there is disease and sickness and suffering and sorrow and disappointment. And that is a real effect of sin and only increases our hope and anxious awaiting for God to make things right. Um, Number two, God may be testing and growing us. I've got um, a scripture. It'll be up here on the screen for you. Um, And it says this in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds good. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That sounds pretty good, too. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Um, God's ultimate goal for us is not for us to be happy. God's supreme goal for us is for us to be holy and bring Him glory. Um, We don't go from where we are to holiness uh, unscathed. Um, We all have rough patches in our life that need to be smoothed out. And the only way to smooth something out is to put sandpaper to it. Um, God may be testing and growing us because enduring suffering and hard times and coming out on top on the other side um, makes us stronger it makes us um, we we trust in God more our faith is strengthened and has grown our hope is even more firm Uh, suffering is not fun but on the other side of it there's there's a great result it's like working out Um, Some people are really weird and enjoy working out. I am not one of those people. Um, Working out is usually boring, and it's painful if you do it right. Um, The next day or the next several days, you're going to be sore. You understand that that temporary pain um, will produce greater strength and endurance And the more you endure it, and the more you go through it, and the more you work out, the stronger you get. And the same is true of our souls. And that God may be testing and growing us. Number three, Satan may be attacking us. Um, Here's several scriptures I want us to look at. First one's in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. John 10.10, the first part of that verse says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, I know it's not really politically correct or cool, but um, there is a spiritual world that we battle in this life. We don't see it, but we feel the effects of it. Um, Satan is not a figment of our imagination or some personification of a generic evil. He is real, and he is a real enemy to Christ and his followers. And he will do whatever he can to 
um, put stumbling blocks in our way in our process of growing and maturing in our faith. And Satan's attacks can be very real and very difficult to handle um, because he does not want us to grow in maturity. He does not want us to follow Christ. He does not want us to do the things God is asking us to do. And many times when we try to do the right thing is when we find the opposition is the greatest. Um, and that may be one of the reasons is because Satan is attacking. The number four, there are real consequences to sin. Um, there are two types of consequences that the Bible talks about to sin. The first one is spiritual, and the second one is physical. Um, spiritual consequences to sin, um, we understand those as that um, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, there is a spiritual consequence to sin. When we choose to follow Christ, you know, earlier we talked about what does it mean to be a Christian, what is baptism. When we, when we believe those tenets and foundational truths of Christianity, when we give God our lives, when we choose to follow Him with everything we have, the spiritual consequences of sin are removed. Um, we will not be judged for our sin. We will be counted as righteousness. When Christ died on the cross, He took our unrighteousness upon Himself and when we believe in Him in faith, that His righteousness is what we call imputed or put onto us so that the spiritual consequences of sin are no longer there. However, there are still real physical consequences to sin. Um, Galatians 6, 7 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. What you reap, you will sow. Um, we used to say it like this growing up in Oklahoma. You will sleep in the bed you made. You heard that? Or is that Southern? We good? You know that one. All right. Um, there are consequences to sin. And though God removes the spiritual and occasionally will protect us from the physical, usually he doesn't. And we need to understand that our sin still has real effects in our lives. Um, and so... If you choose to smoke four packs a day for 45 years, um, it is not God's cruel punishment that you get lung cancer. That's what happens when you smoke four packs a day for 45 years. Um, and so there are still consequences to sin. And though God will remove the spiritual consequences by faith in Him, and sometimes will lessen or protect us from the physical consequences, usually He doesn't. And when we choose to be disobedient to Scripture and not follow God's prescribed ways of living, we should expect for bad things to happen. And here's my fifth thought um, on suffering. This question is flawed. We ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Here's the problem. There are no good people. I got two Scriptures I want us to look at. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Isaiah 46, uh, 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Um, we are not good. Um, we uh, deserve much worse than we get. Some people will say, God isn't fair. 
No, he's not. But he is always good. When we want to understand suffering, we have to begin by looking at the goodness of God. We do not begin by looking at the goodness of man. When we're trying to understand suffering, we have to start with the goodness of God and then thank him that he is not fair. Psalm 103 says this, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Thank God he does not deal with us fairly. Thank God he does not give us what we deserve. Is God fair? No. But he is always good. And as we want to understand suffering, one of the things we have to realize is we have to be careful about the questions we ask and how we ask them because the reality is none of us are good. He is good. And though we do do endure suffering, and it's real, we really don't get what we deserve. Those are my five perspectives on suffering. Here are my three applications that I want us to look at. What do we do with this? Okay, that was good. You got good five perspectives. Yay, I'll print it out and hang it on my wall. But what do we actually do with it? Um, Number one, look to the cross of Christ. The cross represents the worst in humanity. It represents... The absolute worst of what can happen to a good man. If God could be in control, and the scriptures make no question about it, he was in control the entire time. If God could be in control of the horrible, horrible, horrible atrocities that took place on that cross, he can be and is in control of your life in the midst of suffering. When it feels like God's not there, when it feels like he's taken his hands away, he's turned his back, or things have spun out of control, look to the cross of Christ. God was always in control. And if God could be in control during the cross of Christ and come out on the other side being glorified, know that your suffering That in your suffering, God is still in control. And that on the other side, God will still be glorified, which is the point of our lives. Look to the cross of Christ. Number two. Don't try to rescue God. Here's what happens sometimes in Christian circles. And we we do it, we try to be very good-hearted and well-meaning. And we try to rescue God from our sufferings. We try to remove him from our sufferings so that nobody could get the misconception that it's his fault. Here's the problem. You remove the sovereignty of God out of your suffering. And you also remove your only source of hope. Don't try to wrestle, I mean to rescue God out of your suffering let him be God 
and let him be present in your suffering. Though it may be coming by very evil ways, very evil people are at the, are at the heart and the driver's seat of the suffering that you're enduring. God is still sovereign. Don't try to rescue him. Let him be there. Let him still be in control. Don't try to defend him. Let him be there. Let him be sovereign. Because as long as you continue to acknowledge him in the situation, your source for hope and peace and comfort and holiness is still there. It comes out of good-hearted, well-meaning, I don't want God to get put in a bad light. Let him be there. Number three, draw near to him. Don't allow your suffering to be pushed away. Because when you draw away from God, it only makes the suffering more intense and it only brings more of it. Push into him. Don't allow yourself to be drawn away. Without God, without hope, without faith, pain has no other meaning than what it is. Pure, unadulterated suffering with no redeeming value. You pull away from God, and then it just becomes cruel, ruthless pain. Push into Him. Because with God, with hope, with faith, we understand that our lives here on earth, however few or however many they are, while they are important, and while they should be lived and used and, and enjoyed wisely, they're merely preparation for a greater life to come. Our lives are like a thin ray of light that shines from the eternity of what it'll be like in heaven with God. When we draw near to Him, we start to understand that there's a bigger picture and that our our short life on this earth is not all there is. There's something greater and the suffering has an end and can produce things that will last for eternity. C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you know that name, um, probably one of the most famous Christian authors and theologians, certainly of the 20th century, um, one of the top five Christian thinkers and writers um, over the last 2,000 years, I mean, outside of the thinkers and writers involved in the Bible. Um, let me tell you, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And first of all, if you want some good Christian reading, there's nothing you can go wrong with. By, you, you won't go wrong reading C.S. Lewis. If you're in the midst of suffering and you're looking for a book that really spends a lot more time than I have um, right now to deal with it, The Problem of Pain is a great one. He wrote this book while watching his wife die of cancer. And he says this, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Draw near to him in your suffering. Paul, a Christian who suffered as much as anyone has, says this in 2 Corinthians, 
starting in verse, in chapter 12, starting in verse 8, three times he's talking about a great suffering that he's enduring. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice God's reply when he said, would you please take the suffering away from me? He says, for my grace is sufficient for you. There are things about God's character, comforts, securities, that come only in the moments of suffering when we push near. When we discover that He's all we need. There's a bigger picture to this life. Uh, there's a uh, couple, Jordan and Katie Lewis. Um, they were uh, involved in a part of a church that um, I worked at when Elena and I first got married when we were still in Oklahoma. And um, I don't know this couple. I was actually alerted. Elena was the one who let me know about them. Um, Jordan Lewis um, came home from a, a, a uh, mission trip to Tanzania. And a few days after he got home, uh, found out that he had stage four sinus cancer. Um, despite him and his wife's strong faith and belief uh, that God would bring him through and bring healing, um, on March 20th of this year, at the age of 23, having only been married for nine months and just graduating college, um, Jordan went home to be with the Lord. Um, Jordan and Katie started a blog to talk about the, their life going through. I mean, they, everything was ahead of them. They had just graduated college, just gotten married. They were serving the Lord faithfully. Then just a bombshell gets dropped into their life. And even then, they stood strong. They held strong. They trusted in the Lord and believed for complete healing. Um, and, and then he went home to be with the Lord. And got his complete healing, just not in the way they thought it was going to happen. Um, this week, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, Katie wrote, um, it's only her second blog post since Jordan died in March. She wrote one just a few days after. and She wrote this this week, and I want to read it for you today. Since March, I've been asked many times if faith seems like a failure to me. I totally get this question. Jordan and I knew we were to believe for his complete healing here on earth. There wasn't a time when Jordan complained or doubted his healing. He used what was left of his voice to praise and declare the faithful works of the Lord during his final days here on earth. I knew Jordan was going to be healed. We all did. Instead, he experienced unimaginable, unimaginable pain and died at 23 years of age. And I got a front row seat to watch his suffering. So what am I supposed to do now that God didn't do what I begged him to do? I've realized that faith is more than I've given it credit. It is a deep well from which we must draw in, draw deeper in, in order to quench our thirst. When faith doesn't satisfy our answer, we must go deeper in our faith to receive peace and wholeness. I still believe in miracles. 
I still believe in healing. But for me to drop my beliefs because God didn't do what I wanted him to do would be cheating myself from the sweet richness of understanding that I will never understand the great depths of God. He is wild. He cannot be tamed. This wildness of God created galaxies yet to, we've yet to explore, breathed into dust and made man. If he did everything I wanted him to do, then I could tame him. And for some reason, there's a great peace in knowing that I could never put God in a cage. It's this same cage I tried to put him in when I didn't think I would marry the man of my dreams because I didn't think someone like Jordan could exist. Faith is not a band-aid. It's a way of living. Faith is standing alone at the end of the day with your husband's wedding ring in your hand. It's wretched and deep, and it requires more from us than we are comfortable. The more we explore its uncharted terrains, the more we realize that we were created for, what we were created for. Admittedly so, I am glad he destroyed all the cages I've attempted to put him in. If I could tame God, I would be heartbroken. So now here I stand, ready to believe again. If I had to rewalk this journey, I would choose to walk in bold faith again and again because this journey exposed me to the most tender love of a faithful father. He showed me he is wild and boundless, but stooped to my side to hold my hand through the hardest nights. I've seen the greatness of God that he has left me in complete awe. And through this faith journey, he gave me a rare and precious love. He gave me the gift of Jordan. Faith has never failed me. Will you pray with me?